Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello and welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm Adam Smith and I'm joined today by a panel of early career researchers who are here to discuss the dreaded thesis writing. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> which we all know is different from journals and something which is something we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, so all of our three panellists have written their theses, um, some recently and some uh, a while ago. So I hope we'll have some fresh tips and some hizzy memories Looking at Marianne's bound to have hazy memories rather than fresh tips. <laughs> Definitely involved a lot of tea, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, so by the end of the discussion today, I hope our listeners will be inspired and perhaps realise that they're not uh, alone in doing this, but and will be itching to get back to writing as opposed to finding other things to do as a distraction. I'm just thinking I do that all the time now, not even as a thesis writing, just just to avoid, you know, the things you don't really want to do. Cat memes are up there high on the list. (laughs) Shopping on Amazon Mm. when you don't really need pairing socks. Um, That was an episode from Black Books. Do you remember when he had to do his taxes and he sat out the back and paired a mountain of socks instead? Um, Okay, well, so um, I should introduce our panel who are here to join us about thesis writing. Um, We have uh, Dr. Marianne Coleman. Hello. Uh, who's a research author... Go on. Just call me an optimist, it's easier. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say orthroptist. Would no, that have been right? Most of the way there. So it literally means straight eyes. So okay. orthoptist. Orthoptist, yeah. So I was going to say it right. I, yeah, I question myself. Uh, from the University of Surrey, uh, we have Dr Josie Jenkinson, who's Hello. a consultant psychiatrist, from um, also from Surrey as yep. well. And we have Maxine McIntosh, who's a PhD student um, from uh, here at the at UCL and the Alan Turing Institute. Yep. Hello. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, welcome to you all. Maybe we can start by asking you to uh, introduce yourselves. Maybe if you go first, Maria. Okay. So um, my PhD thesis was actually nothing to do with dementia whatsoever. I'm here as an interloper because I'm currently doing some dementia research. Um, So my thesis was actually working with children. Um, So children that have lazy eye, which is a condition where the brain prefers one eye over the other. And so the connections between the eye and the brain don't develop as well as they should do. Um, And because of that, a child often needs to wear an eye patch over one eye to improve the quality of vision. Um, So... Basically, my PhD involved a lot of messing around with computers. So I was basically um, using computer technology to measure distorted vision in children with lazy eye because when they have the patch on, it improves the level of vision, but it doesn't necessarily fix everything about the way in which the brain talks to that eye. And so you can end up with problems with motion perception and distorted vision, which is what my thesis was concentrating on measuring. So that was the topic of my PhD. Um, I finished my thesis in 2014. Um, So it was a little while ago for me. Five years. Yep. Yep. And, and were you allowed to call it lazy eye now? Because that sounds like that doesn't sound like a PC term, does it? No, it doesn't, no, it doesn't these days. No, absolutely. But in actual fact, as far as the patients are concerned, that's that's the 
the language that uh, they, no, no, just, that makes sense to them. I knew what you mean when you said Liz. Exactly. It just, it just immediately felt about like it that. To other Ooh, people. That sounds... Yeah, but I mean, you say, for instance, you had like cerebral palsy or something, you wouldn't say, oh, you got a lazy leg or something like that. No. But, you know, way back in the uh, in the 40s and 50s, that was the term that they used for it. My parents might have said I had lazy-itis at that age, but <laughs> I, I don't think that's actually a medical term. Yeah, so the, the technical term for it is amblyopia, but if you say that to a child amblyopia. or a parent, they'll be like, oh, what? I like that word, amblyopia. <laughs> Yeah, so it basically means blunted vision. And it also sounds a, a little bit like a desert island somewhere I'd like to visit. <laughs> I've just come back from Amblyopia. <laughs> uh, Josie, maybe you could introduce yourself now. Hi. Um, so I'm Josie Jenkinson. I'm a consultant psychiatrist for older people. And um, my PhD was in health services research. And I looked at the costs of care and outcomes for a group of older people with long-term conditions who were subject to um, a series of service changes at South London and Maudsley. So I followed them over three years while several long-term care units closed down and community services were brought in in their place and found out what happened to them. So I submitted in uh, December 2018, had my Viva April this year and got minor amendments and I'm just about to resubmit next week. So this is very topical discussion for me. And your PhD topic sounds a lot like a Channel Four documentary. Hmm. It's got it's got kind of documentary written all over it, hasn't it? Channel Five following <laughs> a service closing. In fact, hasn't there just been one like that? I'm sure I caught I the like it's like a battery of the tail end of it. Yeah, program. and actually, it was really interesting experience. Um, because it was quite sensitive time, and I'm sure you can imagine that the staff working in the services were really stressed out. And so actually collecting data and going to visit these units and talking to staff was not straightforward because of the changes that were going on were not universally well received. That sounds like a whole separate podcast all about itself, about (laughs) delivering... Get, gathering your data in challenging in environments. A environment, yeah. That sounds like a yeah. I think. I think you've just signed yourself up, Josie. For so, a new yeah. one of you. <laughs> that does sound like, like a, a good topic for the future. Thank you very much, Josie and Maxine. So I am in the midst of writing up. Um, I'm hoping to hand in the next few weeks, but uh, the perception of time always is a bit kind of off. So my PhD looks at uh, taking medical records and looking back 20 years in any medical record, um, specifically primary care. Uh, medical data and see if we can find any signs, symptoms, procedures, surgeries, anything that's in your EMR that can give us an early sign of dementia. So it's it's kind of a large scale fishing exercise across medical data. And um, I've got access to 300,000 dementia patients data. So it's kind of pretty hefty data set. And you get all these kind of weird and wonderful signals that come up. So, um, for example, people who regularly attend their cervical smear exam are way less likely to get dementia. So you get these kind of odd things that come out of your EMR. Um, So I'm doing that at uh, UCL. And I've also got this kind of visiting PhD studentship, which is at the Alan Turing Institute, which is the UK's Institute for AI and Data Science. And the whole PhD is this kind of mix of informatics and epidemiology and AI and data science methods. I've also added... a couple of kind of odd, interesting, uh, like somewhat related side projects to the PhD. Um, so one of them looks at if you do policy evaluation on all the various dementia policies that have been implemented and you do it in a data-driven way rather than the traditional way that you evaluate policies, do you get the same outcomes? And the, you know, the result is actually, no, you can't really determine whether these policies were effective or not because there have been quite so many, they've been quite so cumulative and duplicative. And then the kind of other side project that I um, am doing for the PhD is... Uh, 
the in the EMR data, a lot of it is can you find dementia early? You know, the, the kind of key idea is can you phenotype what prodromal dementia looks like? Um, and so part of that is if you look at your electronic health records, is that too late in the process? So the, the last kind of project in the, in the PhD is interviewing CIOs, CTOs, CDOs of big consumer data companies. So banks, telco companies, shopping companies, and asking them, are they doing anything to do with health and aging in um, with their data? And uh, the truth of the matter is they're all doing it, but in secret. Mm. Yeah, of course. We've seen that before, I particularly with like Google and, mm. and Amazon mm. and the way they collect data through their... money in it, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's fascinating. And I can completely see how that you can get sucked into taking sidelines down that and trying to, you know, data always feeds this this thirst and interest in so much as you find something that's interesting and then want to go and find out more and understand why that occurs. Mm-hmm. I think I can, your, your people who attend cervical smears are less likely. That sounds like because they're also the people that are pretty good about health and coming in, right? Yeah. I mean, none of it's kind of not you know, no. healthy people, more likely to be activated patients, that sort of thing. So it, a lot of it isn't really novel insights, but I guess it's um, features that are not normally collected as part of clinical trials. And what are the indicators of just healthier people who are less frail? Mm-hmm. Um, and that just happens to be the signal you get. Um, so, you know, if you had access to banking data, would you get that in an even stronger way is the question. Mm. I've seen that done before with um, with uh, that talked about before with um, shopping data, with loyalty cards, mm. um, shopping data to understand, you know, how did people's shopping habits change over time, particularly post and pre-diagnosis. Fascinating, all very interesting and uh, well done, all of you, on having gotten to the point of, of well, <laughs> Maxine, don't worry. I'm just, I'm just here <laughs> sipping a, a small little glass of white wine, just being like, no, no, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> so, so general question to all of you then. Did anybody, has anybody actually enjoyed the experience of writing up your thesis? I, you, or anybody speak out? I'm not pointing that question to anybody in particular. I was looking at the question list and thinking enjoyment is definitely a relative term. Um, I enjoy writing. Writing is something that I do like doing. Um, but writing an entire thesis, mm, I don't know how much of that is kind of enjoyment and kind of borderline hysteria, really. I quite like because when I when I've done writing up before, I mean, kind of getting it down on paper, what's in your head, you know, because you spend so much time. I mean, this is just all consuming, you know, from waking up in the morning and standing in the shower, and then suddenly I'll have a oh, I've thought of a really good way to to present that, and then I'll go back and write. And I thought sometimes actually just sitting there and getting it down, I quite enjoy. I'm having, unfortunately, this is the sort of thing that would go down really badly if I heard it. I'm having the best time writing up. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Kind of for that reason, you know, that um, I've been working on this thing for three years and I've, you know, various projects that kind of start and ain't quite, quite, quite finished. And I think that's the nature of doing data analyses is that you can start things quite easily, but finishing them is probably a bit harder. And um, it's just so satisfying having that focus and you know, having a reason not to reply to emails and just say, you know what, leave me alone. I'm hibernating and I'm writing up and it's just, it's very calm and peaceful and cerebral. As long as you really are writing up, that's not just suddenly (laughs) become the the all-round excuse for getting out of everything else you should be doing. but it's, it's, it helps. (laughs) Do we use that? I mean, do we think we kind of use, oh yeah, I can't possibly do anything else now I'm writing up. Is, Is that a good excuse? I did try and say no to a lot of things during my writing up period, but Uh, to an extent my husband was kind of like the divine intervention in that regard he's like no there is more to life than just your thesis you do need to actually you know exist outside of your computer keyboard um 
So, yeah, I did try and get out of things. So not, not just used as an excuse and kidding ourselves in the process. Jo- Josie, you've been very quiet. <laughs> I'm just, just thinking about it and reflecting. Definitely enjoyed little bits of it. I'm actually really enjoying doing the amendments because it's more like editing and fine-tuning and the content is already there. And it's quite nice actually looking back at your thesis and thinking, oh, this is quite, this is quite good actually. <laughs> reading paragraphs and thinking, oh, I can't believe I wrote this. This is actually all right. <laughs> um, so amendments is quite satisfying and it all suddenly feels a lot easier um, because I think it's a bit like that, isn't it? Once you've been through something, it feels really difficult at the time and then you maybe go away for a few months and have a break, you come back to it and start again and it all feels a lot easier because you've been through the process once already. So I'm definitely feeling that at the moment. I think. Do you think some of this comes down to the nature of the nature of your research and the, the way you're approaching your PhD in the first place as opposed to when is the appropriate time to actually start writing? Because I've been seeing all too often in you know, other how-to guides and top tips and things, the, the, the recommendation is always to start writing as early as possible. But of course, some research lends itself to that approach and some doesn't. Um, I, I know from talking to you before outside, of course, you're a, you're a jobbing consultant psychiatrist and you your PhD was was mixed around as you continued to study and do other things when when did you start so you're in health services research when did you actually start writing as I probably started writing in the middle so I was doing my literature review and I did um, a national survey as part of my background and I wrote up a paper that's always a good way to to get (laughs) feel yeah. like you're doing something get yeah. it I've done a survey get a paper out yeah exactly <laughs> surveys out there yeah <laughs> so that that was good so I did that probably year two so I did it part-time so six years and then um I did most of the writing up in the last 18 months and I did it alongside working full-time in my first consultant job which I do not recommend mm-hmm. it was pretty awful so I used most of my annual leave and study leave entitlement to do it so I would just chip 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 away at it whilst I was working and then blast it during my two weeks off here and there throughout those 18 months so that's got there in the end. Again there. so that's kind of doing evenings and weekends and do you yeah, have these kind of so. focused short periods of time where you Yeah, so um, my clinical job was so tiring, I had to write first thing in the morning. I tried writing in the evening and it just didn't work. So I'm not a natural early riser, but I had to become one. So I would try and squeeze in between one and three hours of writing before my clinical job every day. Before work? And then do a full day at the weekend. What time were you getting up? That's like five. (laughs) Five. Did you you go for a run before that as well? I actually did. I was running at four. (laughs) I actually did because I think... um, you can get quite depressed and quite miserable when you're working that hard. And for me, exercise is a way to stave that off. So I found out early on that I had to do something to keep myself going. So actually exercising first thing in the morning was a really good way to do that. I would highly recommend it. I've heard, yeah, so many people say that. I, I just turned to pasta. <laughs> pasta is good too. <laughs> if you're going to eat a load of pasta, you're going to have to run to keep it I'm not even that. saying pasta. It's Haribo and, Haribo and red wine at the yeah, time. Yeah, both of those <laughs> featured as well. So, yeah. Soaked in. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even want to think about how much chocolate I ate during my writing up period. So when did, yeah. when did you start writing, Marion? Um, well, I spent most of the first year of my PhD doing experiments and not really doing any journal reading or anything. Um, which was probably probably a bad plan, but um, I started writing properly at the start of my second year and I did my introductory chapter, which took ages because at that time I wasn't still wasn't completely sure what I was doing. 
you know, that standard PhD thing of like, you don't really properly understand what it is that you're all about until towards the end of your second year. Um, so it took me way longer than that, by the way. I'm oh. still not sure if I know what I'm doing. But <laughs> I should add, I did my PhD full time. So, um, and I did, I, I completed within the three years of funding as well. So I handed in pretty much on the last day of my funding was when I submitted my thesis. Um, so yeah, so I wrote mostly, um, I started writing in the second year, I did a couple of chapters then. Um, everybody has different approaches to writing their thesis in my case because it was a series of very closely interlinked studies that were using the same method that developed and iterated over the course of the PhD period. It meant that I could do my introductory chapter and my methods chapter quite early on and then the rest of it was just individual experiment chapters written up. Um, so I did the the vast majority of my writing in my final year actually took place while I was conducting my final study. Um, so I was sitting in the hospital at Gartnaval General Hospital up in Glasgow, and whenever I didn't have somebody coming in to be tested for the experiment, I would be writing my thesis. So I guess is there something there about even if you're not going to dive into that first chapter and, and dive into writing... I mean, having good documentation is kind of a given anyway, right? Do we even need to say that? But I suppose even in just documenting your experiments, actually, what if you make a really good job of that and do that really thoroughly, actually, you've got some... You've, it's, I it, think it can, for a lot, there can studies, be a lot of copy and paste after that. Even just that. the ethical approval, because you have to get ethics for everything that you do involving human subjects... Um, Not in health service research. Yeah, oh, really. It depends did. on what you're doing. <laughs> in anonymized electronic health records, which I find always a bit surprising. But yeah, and so um, the protocol that you do in order to get the ethical approval to actually gather your data is a really good starting point for your mm -hmm. thesis chapter, especially if you're doing a series of self-contained experiment oh, okay. chapters. Um, so I had a, a an overall methods chapter which introduced the actual concept and the method of doing it. And then in the individual experiment chapters, I would document what changes I made. So putting a lot of effort into your ethics, which of course you have to do anyway, to, to into ethics, can then uh, that can lead on to, to what you're going to write. Essentially, yeah. yeah. It just makes the, that process of turning your protocol into a chapter easier. What, what about you, Maxine? Have you... I've taken a slightly different approach, um, but I think it's going okay. So I started writing in July, and I'm handing in in the next month or so, Ooh, and I hadn't written anything really before. So that's in... Wait a second. We should say this, because these July, podcasts August, don't all so go out three, straight away. It'll be kind of three months. So it's the end of August now. Yeah, so, uh, so three, three months. months. So I think it was... So when I, whenever I read a paper, I write quite thorough notes on it, and that's just kind of stored. Um, but I hadn't really written anything. I'm actually very, very glad I didn't, because... When I started writing, I thought, actually, that analysis that I did in year one would work much better with this analysis in year three. And that bit of year two would work really well in year one. And actually, I, I, you know, the beauty of doing data science is you can kind of just move scripts around and rejig them f kind of fairly easily. So actually, I completely restructured the thesis, even though the content was largely the same. And um, uh, yeah, and it's just been kind of quite quite easy to I found it quite easy to write, partly because I had written so many notes on all the papers as well. Um, but one thing that I did... Uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was unpleasant, but I think the thesis will be a lot better as a result, is because of the, the knowledge I now have of writing it now, I, I realised there was a small mistake, a small bug in my code from year one. So you needed to, you wanted to redo that experiment? So, well, no, it's not, it's, it's actually worse than that. It was, uh, it was the thing that defined the entire cohort that will define the rest of the PhD. And it wasn't wrong, but it just wasn't quite what I was expecting it to be. And it wasn't quite the, the cohort I'd wanted. And so I ended up rewriting 
all the code for my PhD, but you know, programmer now, Maxine, is much better than programmer in year one. So actually my, my code is now infinitely more reproducible, infinitely cleaner. Ooh. And actually I'm really pleased because I want to publish all my code along with my papers. Yeah, that and counts. And I'd be so embarrassed to publish the code I had written in my year one. Oh, so nobody wants it's to been see my code. <laughs> that's a good question though. So that's a, that raises an interesting point, doesn't it? Which is if you do save all to the end, is it really hard then to look back on your work from kind of year one or those first experiments that you were doing and go, actually I'm quite proud of those, I'm quite happy to include them or you're tempted to say, oh, actually, I really, I really want to redo that now because mm. because I know it would be better. I suppose that if you didn't want to do that, that would lend itself to kind of writing as you went, wouldn't it? Because then you would just move on. You'd put that, that part to bed and you wouldn't be revisiting it in quite such a way as you are. You know, there is something about um, how you mature as a researcher throughout the course of your PhD that makes writing up at the end a lot easier than it is at the beginning. Yeah. Because... With the perspective of the several years of research that you've done, you're able to conceptualise so much more in your head and work out a logical structure for your thesis that you just would not have been able to do at the beginning. So although everybody does give the advice of you should always be writing, I think, yes, you can always be writing, but writing notes and the little bits that you need to do in terms of your upgrade, your ethics, any papers, but actually... The whole the thesis proper naturally comes together towards the end, yeah. which you've done so many years of thinking about a topic. Mm. Everything just kind of falls into place. It did for me anyway. Or if you've already written some chapters, just revisiting them at exactly, the end, yeah. just because the person you were when you wrote those is not going to be the same person you are when you do your final, you know, your discussion and conclusion <laughs> chapter, and your, you know. It's... But, uh, but as you say as well, I mean, I think don't don't then be too precious about kind of or worry too much if you haven't written kind of absolutely perfect chapters early on because you're really going to want to look at all this more strongly and more thoroughly. And I think that to an extent can influence how you feel about your writing as a whole because I remember definitely it was probably about um, it's like the first half of my final year where I went through a phase of just being like oh god nothing is finished i haven't finished a single chapter um because everything was just in that sort of draft status of like you know i've got comments i need to rework this i need to redo that oh god that experiment that i wrote up before i actually understand why i did that experiment now let's just uh you know rework that a little bit so it fits in with the overall narrative of what i'm doing um and so there wasn't really any chapter that i could say that i'd conclusively finished and could actually put to bed and that that really got to me actually that you know I did definitely have a period where I would just felt really overwhelmed by the sheer um, unfinishedness of the whole thing. Okay, so takeaways from that little question then seem to be that there isn't necessarily a, any rights and wrongs about when to start, but from your experience here, the idea of doing the substantial the substantive part of the writing toward the end, based on the rounded position of the last three or five years however long it's taken you to do this but keeping awesome notes throughout really good documentation your ethics application can be a good starting point to also get your head in the right place and to get the document down and does that sound reasonable mm-hmm. so moving on then what was your i, I think my next question here I had written down before, which was what was your process, but I feel to some extent we've kind of, we've got that. But what about more practically? 
what about your process practically? So, so Josie, you got up at four, went for a run, <laughs> not quite fed the horses, <laughs> no, and, and and then no. <laughs> roting the mornings. Not quite. Um, definitely had to have a morning routine to get myself up and going. And the thing that I found really really helpful was this big A4 book that I had and I used to write a diary entry every day before I started doing anything and then once I'd done my work and I would just start writing about anything even just how I was feeling that morning um, what was going around my head um, what I really wanted to get done in my next little You've work given this period advice to patients haven't you I can tell you <laughs> this is this is straight out of your textbook for what you suggest <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Keep a diary. Yeah, keep it. Well, diaries are really helpful. And um, one of the best bits of advice anybody gave me was that you can't edit a blank page. And then if you just start writing anything, anything at all, could be nonsense. At least you've got something to edit. That's a quote for the for the podcast cover. Can't edit a blank page. What about you, Maxie? So you've just had three months, mostly of the summer. Has have you had the cricket on in the background as well? We've had the World Cup and the Ashes. You know, not a cricket. Absolute silence worker. (laughs) So, but do you do have you been so during this three months writing? Have you been at home at work? Where have you been? So uh, I live in London, but my partner lives in Oxford, and uh, Oxford's a very nice place for lots of reasons. But also, it's quite useful place to write up if you don't know anyone in the city. Uh, So it was I moved to Oxford to write up um, because uh, partly it's just a new environment. It's also nice to be next to a partner who can just be like. Can you just do the washing up tonight? Can you just cook tonight? Can you just do everything, please, for me? And uh, it's just been nice to be in a different environment. So I moved to Oxford um, and I am a hyper morning person. uh, And I also like it because by the time you kind of get up and have done numerous hours of work, then the rest of the world wakes up. And then all the noise of emails and communication starts. And that's something I find quite hard to silence. I said this on the WhatsApp recently, that kind of golden hour is exactly the same. That kind of golden hour, I can, I get so, so efficient during that kind of one hour in the morning when it's, it is quiet and there aren't emails coming in because I'm the worst person to be distracted. An email mm. will come in and suddenly that will take my entire attention for the next half an hour. Yeah, exactly. And it shouldn't do. I mean, it's just because I'm bad at prioritising so this my boss is you know what, I resisted it for so long this working in the morning business because I am a night owl through and through me too I, I really resisted it but working full time it, it was mm. actually the only way that I could get it done and you know you slip back into your natural patterns don't you so as soon as I submitted straight back to being a night owl but now I'm doing amendments the only way I've been able to do it is to come back to being an early morning riser and getting it done it's actually quite nice to learn that you can do that that you can switch in and out of that mode so you know you've got it in your armory so if you're ever faced with a tight deadline in the future you really need to get something done you can go into that and uh, did you mode. have a, a partner to use as a slave during your, <laughs> <laughs> your so the my, my supervisors i've got like a data one and a, a dementia one but because i'm using gp data if i put the kind of uh, diagnostic codes in front of my uh, kind of dementia neuroscience supervisor 
he doesn't really know why weird things are coded by odd GPs around the country, whereas my partner's a GP. So I'll be like, what on earth is that code? And he'll say, oh, yeah, that year we just happened to be paid at that time. And so we always decided to code it in that way. And so those sorts of insights are really useful. there was some enhanced service that meant if you... So he's he's also, he's he's both, he's both a a pre-husband and also a kind of at-home supervisor, which I think is probably an unhelpful blurring of dynamics. But... um, for me, just the kind of blank page thing, I think, was really useful. I What I would do is I would choose a paper that I thought was amazing, that I would never be able to write anything like that. And I would copy and paste particular sections of it into my onto a blank page and just use those as anchors. And then by the end of the various iterations, there wouldn't be any of it left. Mm-hmm. But it was just helpful providing that skeleton. Mm-hmm. And it was a paper I would really admire that I would kind of hope that one day I could do something so great. So that's how I used it. Did anybody has anybody, did anybody go on a retreat? You didn't go, you know, because I know various universities, I saw this recently, I think it's Good Enough College has a writing retreat in Scotland you can book and go to and things like that. Yeah, Nobody. We never, we never really had anything like that offered to us at... Um, well, it was Glasgow, Caledonia. You were Glasgow, so you just have to, to go in a tent in Loch Lomond and you've covered. I know, there was, retreat, there was one tea shop that I used to basically just kind of go into and just sit in there and just... But I, I did quite a bit of writing at home, um, but the bulk of it was done at the hospital. So you were at the hospital? Your hospi- You were at the hospital too? Um, most of writing. Oh, no, of course, in the morning you were yeah, early... So Sometimes at home and sometimes I would go into my work office. Very lucky. I mean, most doctors don't have offices anymore, but I do have my own office. So I would use that or the hospital library or at the weekends, take myself somewhere else, maybe sit in a coffee shop and, and I was do it say, there. is anybody else a coffee shop writer? Oh, gosh. So, yeah, Definitely. Uh, I know uh, Alan lives, also lives in, in uh, Oxford, but there's a new coffee shop in Jericho that has the most exquisite coffee. And I didn't think myself a coffee snob until I found this place. And they play amazing music and the coffee barista guy is so nice and the coffee is delicious. And I think I single-handedly bankroll the organisation <laughs> at the moment. Also as well, Oxford is fantastic in so much as, and somebody's going to correct me on this, but if I recall, it's got 156 libraries mm. in Oxford between the various colleges. Um, so, yeah, we're very lucky in Oxford to have mm. those places and such historic kind of buildings and things, although not always the comfiest of seats. Mm. And there's not <laughs> tons of, like, lots of them are based in basements, which I find incredibly annoying. Well, that, well, that's because the, they don't want the light coming in, ruining in the books, <laughs> exactly. ancient tapestries. Mm. Uh, but you're right, they do. Or they have special film on the windows that does exactly the same thing. Mm. Just it helps with that transformation process of becoming a trogdolite with your fingers yeah, exactly. welded to the computer keyboard. Yeah. Ooh, well, that's <laughs> a good point, actually. Are, 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 we all PC, are you PC or Mac people? Nah. You're a Mac? I've got all this weird thing whereby I have a virtual machine, so I do all my data analysis in a secure environment, which is a Windows computer on my Mac. So, but your 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 documents in Mac. Uh, half and half, annoyingly, because I've got half of my PhDs on this virtual machine, and half is so some of the documentation You're has to stick happen. it all together as a PDF later. Yeah, I think so. It's, you've, it's kind of... You're going to have formatting problems, right? <laughs> Not so much now. Actually, so I yeah. in the libraries. So just coming back to where we were writing, actually, so Kings has several libraries, and being in different libraries for some reason, I found quite helpful. Just mm. even different views out of the window, just mixing it up, having different work settings, really helpful. Um, but I used to when I use those, they all use Windows. But I have Mac at home. And actually, the newer versions of Word, not yeah. a problem. I, I, yeah, it's sort of back in the old days. Yeah, it used it's to not have really all those an issue Compatibility now. issues, just, like at conferences and stuff, with presentations between Mac and PC and stuff. Yeah, so it's, it's fine now. Mac it's just your fingers that have Marianne, to learn. Are you Mac the Windows? Uh, Windows. Windows. 
I, I, you mean you haven't sat and screamed bastard at your computer because you can't make that that line why is that line there and that line shouldn't be there there's nothing to suggest why there's an empty line in that place and you've reformatted no i think the new version of office with mac is actually it's fine it's really transferable so make sure you're using the newest newest version i i I was actually using words 97 so formatting is kind of really not a problem with latex um if you do, if you're kind of happy using kind of HTML code to format your documents. But one thing I realized that if your supervisors or the people commenting on your documents are not comfortable with using LaTeX. Yep. Uh, you, you yep. Can't I tried to quite teach quickly. myself how to use it. I was so motivated at the start of my PhD. I was like, right, I'm going to teach myself LaTeX. I'm going to like do everything. It's going to be so beautifully laid out. And my supervisor was like, what? Yeah. No, Just to reason, <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what these guys are talking well, about no, right I'm now. So, so, uh, so LaTeX is, is a fact. <laughs> if you were going to build a website that was your PhD, that's what you do. So you'd write instructions oh, at the top okay. of your document that would say every heading is like this. This is the format of everything, and everything is kind of codified. So it's okay. effectively like programming your PhD. And then you just write. Is that like in Word when you go to the top and you pick what font you want all kind the documents yeah, yeah. to be? So, it's a bit, it's, so that's the kind of drag and drop yeah, You have more control over yeah. everything. My mm. problem was trying to do tables in LaTeX yeah, as a new fun. as a new person to LaTeX. Trying to learn how to do table layouts was just no. <laughs> screen grabbing tables, which I think is sort of slightly lazy practice, because tables are the one thing that I think LaTeX is really bad at. Yeah, and so, so you know, you I ended up abandoning those? it in the end, and I did everything in Word. Yeah, that's what I, I did. screen grabbed everything for my tables and figures. It's by far the easiest way to get them in. I would say. As long as the resolution's good enough mm. then for reproduction in print, yeah. and I think there's nothing worse then than when you when you go to print file and you realise that the quality's crap and then you're hunting back through all your trying to find where that you know where to get that table came from in the first See, place. See I offer like an ad hoc service in my uni now for reformatting diagrams to 300 a, wow. DPI for journal submissions. Is that earning you lots of cash? Is <laughs> well, that... More like lots and lots of tea but. <laughs> but I think that this raises a kind of more serious point about um, things like version control and comments and you know set your, set your documents up so that it's kind of easy to use it and I think that Version control in PhD comments is, I think, terrible because... Don't call it final, 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 finally, finally. New date, (laughs) yeah, exactly, that sort of thing. Um, You know, so for example, uh, I would thoroughly recommend using Google Docs and using something like, you know, Zotero, which is a... uh, referencing software that's compatible with Google Docs because Google Docs is a way easier version to get kind of comments simultaneously and live from other people on. Whereas, and then you can oh, take but this it, I mean, again you can depends always... on your supervisor. Yeah. 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 So, my, my, so, so I, luckily I've got a kind of highly techie supervisor and one supervisor is so old school that he will print it off so it doesn't really matter what happens actually. Um, but I, I would agree, I would kind of check whoever's going to give your comments what they're comfortable with. Um, but... Uh, you know things like OneDrive, which is the equivalent of the kind of live document sharing for Microsoft, just I don't think is very good. And I think the most effective is Google Docs if your supervisors are willing to use. Yes, if you happen have to have a, a techie supervisor, I definitely did not. <laughs> I feel like just sitting down with for half an hour and being like, "This is Google Doc. Welcome to 21st century." Would be a helpful life <laughs> but, lesson but more generally. You. If you put it in Google Doc, I mean, worst case scenarios is you can print off i mean mm. you know ultimately you can give them a hard copy if they're willing to do that or i suppose i've done this before where you just copy it out they can download it still as a word document put their comments on it makes more work for you then of course because you've got to incorporate them back mm. back in but that's that's good advice around um you know if you've got sensitive data putting it on google docs i certainly had that 
as an issue. Some of my data was quite sensitive, so I wouldn't have really been happy putting it on Google Docs. Data storage. Well, mm. I'm sure each institution will have their own their own advice and guidance around data storage. But I, I think you all make good points, actually, about just about your filing system and you where you organise your work in terms of version control, where you're keeping your documents, keeping track of all those things. Back everything up. Back everything yeah. up. Triple Forever. back up. Forever. You're not <laughs> yeah. just steering that, that one copy that's on your no. desktop. Two computers, two memory sticks. The version. And your email. Did, uh, did you all do that? I'm just, I'm just I mean, wedded to the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did use Dropbox very heavily during my PhD. I know there's a lot of um, data protection issues surrounding these things now. But certainly for the thesis, which didn't have any identifiable patient data in it, and my data sets, which were also completely anonymised, I, I remember there was one time I just did a complete, like, fat fingered the keyboard and deleted, like, two months' worth of data. And it was just like, Dropbox is like, would you like this back? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so that is definitely the benefit of cloud storage. We've been talking quite a while already and I had a whole list of questions still. So I'm going to run through these really quickly because I, I want answers to these. So um, did you read anybody else's theses before you cracked into your own? Yes. On your topic? Yes. You did. One of the most helpful things I did. You did too. I only read my supervisors and she joked to me when she gave it to me, oh, if you lose it and forget to give it back to me, I'm not going to cry about it. I didn't get what she meant at the time, but now I do. I okay. never want to see so mine again. So you just read your supervisors. You read um, Maxine? No, I didn't. M mine has... It's quite, You're so unique. Well, no, no, but it's, like, well, like well, it's, kind of, it's a weirdly interdisciplinary PhD to such an extent I'm struggling to get uh, examiners who will uh, feel qualified to mm. cover all bits of it. Um, but as a result... Every time I read a version, I thought, actually, that doesn't that doesn't feel like my sort of thesis. So I stopped trying to read and actually I'm, I'm just doing me and we'll see how that goes. That's good. I suppose there can be the distance that they can be distracting in so much as you kind of start to then try and emulate what you've seen as opposed to writing your own thing. I think at least having a flick through so you should see what, what one generally looks like in terms of how many pages does a thesis, <laughs> how many pages did other people's theses have? How, how so many times. How many pages should a thesis be? How many words should a thesis be? <laughs> <laughs> all the time I was obsessive about it it varies um, so much yeah, it does it varies so much and it, it's worth checking your own university's guidance on that over and above everything how else. many how many drafts draft draft chapters um but only yeah only one draft of the full just one thesis. one draft and yeah, then you and then work that's it. through I'm in the kind of this blurry period of iterations and drafts at all different stages so I'm, I don't know yours, are just, yours has just been an entire organic there's been no yeah. is that another thing about using the cloud is so much as you don't have drafts because every amendment is stored and you can go back so actually yeah. would you still store drafts in versions like that or do you just um, have one that's an organic document from start to finish if there's been a really big jump I will save a previous version just because um, you know maybe post hoc there will be a paragraph that didn't fit in that mm. you know, that section of the thesis but would be really good for paper but, or you um, spent like three hours reorganising a bunch of tables and you just the thought mm. of having to redo all of that just in case you change mm. your mind I mm. kept separate documents which were discards from so I had a live document rather than keeping the versions of the drafts but anything I took out I kept into a file which I would call methods chapter discards just in case I ever needed it again mm. and, and I had here a question about formatting tips but I, th I think we've kind of covered that to be quite um, one tip I would share about formatting, particularly for Microsoft Word users, is that, um, you know, the heading styles at the top, you've got the ribbon and you've got all the different styles. You can actually make your own custom mm -hmm. one. Mm. Um, some university libraries give you a guide on how to do it. It's definitely worth doing. 
and doing all of your chapters using that same style because then that way you've got all of your headings and everything's all set up and then that way when you actually combine all of the individual chapters together to make the final thesis all the numberings are correct and it actually works mm -hmm. properly and you don't yeah. have to spend hours reformatting everything once you've got your final big document and, and the conversation we mentioned before the conversation with your supervisors about their preferred format of course is is quite important particularly how often were you sending your uh, off to your supervisors for comments once per chapter uh, my supervisor was quite strict on that she only ever wanted to see anything once once per chapter so i had to make sure the first Has your supervisor was a good even one. seen yours yeah again i've got these very very different i've got you know I, I only whatsapp one of my supervisors and the other one i basically write kind of quill ink letters to you know I, it is a bit kind of an odd dynamic but um i generally like to put to send something that's as finished as possible um and just have a couple of conversations in the interim, but not actually show them anything, just to make sure that, you know, I, I'm on the right track, but I prefer to be like, this is my best full chapter. Have, has anybody had issues in getting feedback in a timely way from supervisors? Yes. That's... No, not for me. So I, no. I am, I was, a, it's on one hand, it's really great, I think, writing up during the summer because the world slows down and you have more time. Um, but at the beginning of the summer, I did email all the people who I was expecting to have comments from various chapters saying, just to let you know, this is my timeline for sending you versions. Um, it'd be really great to know if A, if you're going on holiday and B, how long it will take you to to look through a chapter that's X long. And um, I didn't get that many responses to that email. And now that I'm sending chapters off and I'm getting these out of offices that say I'm back in three or four weeks, mm -hmm. it's it's turned out to be a bit tricky. So, um, so even yeah. when you do try to set that kind of mm. set those expectations and that timeline down, mm. they don't necessarily take any notice. No, not necessarily. So. Good luck. We, we won't ask you who your supervisor is. No, they're all really wonderful, <laughs> but just some is quite complicated, it turns out. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, last couple of questions. Anything you'd do differently? Uh, thinking back, obviously you wanted to rethink your whole <laughs> thing, Maxine, so I won't ask you that question. What about you, Josie, Marianne? Anything I don't think do? I could have. Ideally, I wouldn't have been working full-time, but yeah. circumstances meant that I had to, so I don't think I could have done anything differently. But ideally, yes, don't try and write up whilst you're working full-time. That's pretty difficult. That's super. And any, 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 you know, kind of last question, any advice that you would pass on? Obviously, I'm hoping our, our listeners may be in the same situations as you or maybe just starting their PhD. What, what any, just give me one top tip. I'm going to pin you down to one top tip about in relation to writing. Um, Familiarise yourself with the referencing software of your choice as early as possible. Um so that you can have a consistent system for managing your references and your PDF files and however else you prefer to work, if it's on paper or whatever. Just starting at the very beginning with this is how I'm going to organise stuff makes a really big difference because then you're not in your final year and you're like, oh God, where was that paper where I read that one thing? I'm sure there was somebody that said blah, blah, blah. And I really need this to be able to cite it to make this point here in my discussion chapter. And you've got no idea where it is. That's a good point. Referencing software, you can annotate um, the references that you put cool. into it. 
And I think you just recommended people write their PhDs using pencil and paper as well. Was that <laughs> no? <laughs> Do you know what? That would be so cool, right? I mean, sometimes handwriting does make a difference, of, uh, though. If you're stuck on a section, being able to actually write it out can sometimes help with the thought process. Know, Whatever mom, works I, for I you. I have two parents who did PhDs on typewriters, and they love to, to tell me how difficult life was <laughs> using a typewriter and that my life is so easy now. So <laughs> I, I've got enough of that. Actually, I'll come to you the next, Maxine. What would, what's your top tip? Um... I think I, I hate kind of survival bias type questions, but I guess I was told to, um, this is going to go against what's just been said, but to try not to take a job until you've submitted. But then you've got to, you know, at some point you have to plan and you have to get on with your life. Um, and so I'm in this very fortunate position where I've got um, some travel fellowships in the autumn, which I can technically be working whilst I'm on them, but I'd like not to. So on one hand, I've got a hard deadline. On the other hand, if an accident happens and, you know, I have to redo everything. Um, I technically have the time. So I, I guess it would be think really carefully about what your next step is and the timing of that and just think realistically about what you can handle doing simultaneously. Mm. Um, and I think that's only a personal decision that anyone by themselves can make. Josie. And so one of the things I found the most helpful was using project management software for my thesis. So I used Trello, which I would highly recommend. Oh, Trello is so good. So good. So I colour-coded my chapters. If you've used Trello before, that will make perfect sense. If not, have a look at Trello. Um, you see that you can designate cards. It's T-R-E-L-L-O. Yeah, it's free. It's free. I love Asana, but Trello's Oh, yeah, is pretty good too. I just, I really took to Trello. You can get it on your phone and on your, and it's online as well, so you can log in wherever. Do people use Slack for the same thing as well or is that different yes it integrates with slack but yeah. it's not slack i, I like the simplicity of trello so i would have stacks of cards for things like easy wins so and bigger jobs so if i was low on energy and only had an hour i could look at my easy win list and think i can do this in an hour and then i would feel like i was constantly chipping away and i would code the cards according to color so like the methods chapter would be a blue card or results would be pink and that really Ooh. really helped you can now attach so things to trello yeah cards. it's yeah. fantastic so i highly recommend that. that it is and and i know because i've used trello as well and there, there is an app and it's there on yeah, your phone really too really good you can and just you chip, can delegate chip away things all the time. to people as well <laughs> yeah. <in that. laughs> well there's this thing on asana that if you complete a task then you get like a unicorn that flies across the screen oh, with confetti like and you're like that. yeah that was a win Feels thank good. you and yeah. is this where you got your gp boyfriend you just delegate him things review this review this it does oh, have a Trello yes. work list pop up. <laughs> and one more thing, if I may, which is, sounds like a really weird thing, but it was a little thing that really kept me going, was one of my pr- procrastinating things was to go on Instagram. And actually following um, the PhD hashtags was quite motivating. So if you follow the hashtags PhD, PhD student, and there's one called a finished, P-H-I-N-I-S-H-E-D, they're quite inspiring. You feel like a part of a bigger community of people that's doing their PhDs and approaching, finishing and submission. And actually, that was quite helpful. It's a no, lonely business. It actually reminded me. One thing I'm finding incredibly useful is having a blacklister um, for my for anything on the internet. So you basically write down every website that you want to not be looking at. Um, and it's called the self-control app. And oh, you basically activate it for any period of time that you want. It could be 20 minutes. It could be eight hours. And Shouldn't you get somebody else to do that for you? And then they're the ones with the pin. Anybody with 
children would know that you can, you know, set that screen time. Yeah. <laughs> do that yourself. Do that yourself. And Give your phone to your partner and say, set screen time up yeah. for me and don't allow me to look at Instagram. Because it is that thing of, you know, losing, as you said, right at the beginning, you know, the before you know it, half an hour's gone. Yeah. Well, one, more, one more time. Go on, no, we just, again, sorry, the stuff's coming to me that really, really helped is using the Pomodoro method for yeah. working, which is where you set a timer for 50 minutes, you work for 50 minutes and you have a break for 10 minutes and every few hours you have a longer break. That was an absolute lifesaver for me. So I highly recommend that. that jogs, uh, not jogs, Josie's got a good blog in there. Just yeah, to, I feel like you've got a, so in control there's a blog. <laughs> organising her life. Uh, I, I like think this, swan, this podcast needs a, PhDs right here. It needs a companion <laughs> blog from Josie with links to all these things and maybe just a top ten. You wrote me a top ten tips for writing and I'll okay. publish it alongside. And just one last thing to finish <laughs> off. Um, well, I've got a funny feeling we're going to have lots of one last I weeks. mean, <laughs> everyone has their own things that motivate them when writing. Um, for me, when I was really struggling to get finished, um, my husband gave me this suggestion of 1,500-word uh, Fridays. So on a Friday, if I'd written 1,500 words by the end of the day, then he would buy me a treat. Oh, that's lovely. Bribery and corruption is the way to go. Right, yeah. There we go. Get them it's words out. The and yeah, that's how you write. Got, a, that's how you write a novel things. as well, isn't it? And in in right, I really am going to call a day to it because I think we could honestly we could talk about this all the time. And you've all had wine, so honestly, <laughs> this could carry on another hour. It's time to end today's podcast. I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Marianne, Josie, and Maxine, uh, for those who are about to start writing. Good luck. luck. Um, um, For those that have submitted, uh, tune in next time because next podcast in two weeks' time will be on Sitting the Viva. Um, All of our panellists can be found on Twitter. Um, Do you want to quickly give your Twitter names? Yeah, it's MP Orthoptics. I'm at Josie U Jenkinson. At Maxi underscore Mackie. Fantastic. Uh, And if you visit our website, you'll find profiles of all of our panellists and links to those Twitter feeds as well. If you've got anything to add on this topic, uh, please do post a comment on the website or drop us a line on Twitter and we can be found on at dem underscore researcher and I'm at better research. Finally, please remember to subscribe to the podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. Uh, You can also listen through our website. Um, Please do post reviews, share and uh, let others people know about it too and uh, thank you very much everybody uh, and good luck uh, everybody out there with your own writing you can do it thanks adam yeah you can do it this was a podcast brought to you by dementia researcher everything you need in one place register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk